Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. I'm your host, Michael Rosered Rothman, and I'm inviting you to the opera. And uh, I'm not just inviting you to the opera, I'm inviting my co-host uh, all the way from Nashville. Are you, uh, are you an opera fan? Yes, this is Jen to the Rage Adams, and I am an opera fan. Um, I actually was a music ed major in college, so I took some opera lit classes, and I took one that was Mozart and Shakespeare together. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of an opera nerd, more so like orchestral or just symphonic music nerd, but I love opera also. That was a loaded question, uh, <laughs> by the way, constant listeners. I knew all of that uh, about Jen. <laughs> um, I will say uh, there, I would, there's two souls on this podcast, I believe, that uh, that could speak uh, candidly and um, in depth about music. Um, mm. if, if you and uh, I believe Rachel Reeves could probably oh, yeah. do a whole uh, side music episode. But um, oh yeah, she's like a film score expert. She's oh yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I can't wait to I can't wait to talk shop about uh, the Shining soundtrack with her on our uh, mm-hmm. a deep uh, deep or a long watch episode. But uh, that is a good seg because we are talking about yeah. the Shining today and the Shining, uh, not the film, not the book, but the opera. Yes, uh, we uh, we discussed it a little a uh, little bit on the book episode way way back in 2017, um, and at that point the opera was new because it, it debuted in 2016. But it's coming back. Uh, it's uh, Paul Moravec and Mark Campbell's uh, adaptation of Stephen King's The Shining, which uh, they brought to stage uh, originally in uh, Minnesota. But now it's coming back for a second time. Uh, sometimes they come back, you know what I mean? Um, I it's coming, um, coming back for uh, Opera Colorado um, from February 26th to March 6th. And we got a great deal for you because um, we're, this is a sponsored episode for the, uh, for, for the show. And uh, right now you can save 25% off uh, if you use the promo code Losers Club, all in one word. And I wanted to get all that out there because we really want to get some souls out there. We want to get some souls into the overlook. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the ways we're going to be doing that is uh, with this episode. Um, which is going to serve as an official Losers Club episode because we are going to be offering what we do best, some context for for an artifact in King's Dominion. And uh, how are we doing that today, Jen? What, do we, what, what, what is this episode? What, who are we talking to? We are talking to Paul Moravec, the composer of the opera, and I am so excited to talk to him and, you know, can we say we've already talked to him? And we already did. Really yeah. Look, conversation. This is one of those <laughs> intro bumpers that we record after the fact. Right. <laughs> it's a little peek behind the opera curtain. If oh, yeah. Well, you know, 
yeah and and paul and i we're all close friends now we just mm. we just uh we actually just went up to to long island and hung out with him for a little bit and i'm just joking that's not <laughs> oh, happening that would be yet, awesome though it would be awesome uh yeah. but uh yeah no this is this is really great chat and i i learned a lot of things you know things about opera because mm. unlike you jen i i'm not uh, the only thing i know about opera is the scene in the untouchables uh great scene so with mm. the it's sean connery's swan song uh spoiler <laughs> alert and then also um and this is gonna really make me sound awful uh the the, the final opera in uh dirty work 1998 oh. uh, the, the the late bob saget's dirty work so um oh. that's all i know so I, I learned a lot on this chat yeah. you know um but you're the pro and i think that comes through in the, in, in this interview i think you know if, oh. if constant listeners didn't know that about you already i think they're gonna listen to this episode and be like I think Jen should have just taken this interview and not Mike, you know. So, oh, no, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. It was really fun to nerd out about opera and just orchestral stuff. And, you know, it's not a world that I'm in that much anymore. So it was really fun. Do you wish that you could be in The Shining Opera? Absolutely. Now, I will say I am not an opera singer. Like, I am way more of a choir person because my voice is not, like, not nearly big enough to be an opera singer but um yeah I would I would figure out a way to make it big enough and be windy because the music is really cool too yeah like, it's creepy it's, we were listening to some of it and it, it's creepy but it's like there's a lot of heart and it's gorgeous and I just love the compositions and the way he brought music to it but yeah if I had the chance to be in this thing absolutely be well, amazing. I'm dying to see it too. Me too. And I, I kind of wish that I could get out there. Uh, I know. I, I me can't too. do it. I can't do it in this time time span, but I'm hoping you can, constant listeners. And if you mm-hmm. want to, again, go to operacolorado.org. Uh, there are going to be five performances from February 26th to March 6th. You get 25% off the tickets. Losers Club, do it. In the meantime, if you can't make it, hey, you know, the Overlook is an ethereal place. It'll probably materialize somewhere uh, down the road and we'll find out then. But uh, yeah, if you can, call great. your local opera houses and say, we want The Shining. We want Jack. We do, yeah. <laughs> Just keep it vague as possible. <laughs> we want Jack. They'll be like, what the hell are they talking about? Don't know what you're um, talking about. <laughs> God. Uh, anyway, if you can make it, you can't make it. Either way, you can enjoy this interview and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Hi. How you doing? How do I look? Is this okay? Oh, you look great. You look great. It looks like the Perfect. sun's coming in too. I know. <laughs> well, first off, you know, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, you know, sure. we've we've been, you know, covering Stephen King for about five years now. And, you know, when we talked about The Shining in 2017, it, you know, we definitely brought this up. And, you know, we never in a million years thought that we'd talk, you know, to the, to the mastermind behind it. But uh, by the way, I'm I'm Mike Rothman. Uh, I'm a producer and co-host of Mike the Losers and Club. Jen and Jen Adams, yes. And Hello. Tell me something about yourselves. What is the Losers Club? So we're a Stephen King podcast that started uh, five years ago, actually, um, last month, and we it started out as kind of just a way for you know just us get a book club for me and my friends to kind of just go through all his works chronologically, and then. All of a sudden, we had people that wanted to listen, and um, we were like, "Okay, well, I guess we have a following. Let's build upon this." Um, not knowing that, you know, we set a bar for ourselves by doing about three to four hour conversations and deep dives into his work. And 
I mean, since then, it's we're now in the 2000s with his work, so we've we've come a long way. Uh, but we cover everything. I mean, we really try to just hit every corner in uh, what we call King's Dominion, which is like the the wider. Yeah, yeah. Which I, you know, we we crib that from a, a Paramount theme park that I believe is in Virginia. But uh, yeah, we've we figured that's a good name for it. <laughs> but Jen actually has a has an interesting little connect with you. Uh, I do. Yes, this is not the first time we have crossed musical paths. I was in Portara Ensemble in Nashville, and so I was part of the Amorism's oh performance. Yeah, with oh the Nashville God. Ballet and Elias. Isn't that such? strange coincidence oh, wow. i saw your name and was like oh my gosh that's paul morovic that's so exciting are you in nashville do you live in nashville? i am in nashville mm -hmm. where are you at right now i'm at my this is my office um you're looking out the window here uh on the campus of adelphi university on long island i'm in New oh York. nice uh, beautiful campus beautiful day yeah it does look like a very nice day there yeah well, let's talk about The Shining because I, I, I'm, you know, we are here in the Overlook. You know, we're not in actual Cal or Colorado, at least not yet. But uh, mentally, spiritually, we will be for this conversation. I, I guess you know, every story has a beginning. Every project has a beginning. And I thought I'd ask you, Paul. Um, you know, what initially drew you into the Overlook and also convinced you The Shining could be an opera? In Let's see if I can get the date right. It was several years ago, maybe 2012. Um, Dale Johnson, who was running uh, at the time Minnesota Opera, saw an opera of mine, my first opera, which is at Santa Fe Opera, and he wanted to commission me. And we were looking at various properties. Uh, one idea that we had, and, and it was Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. wow. Nice. Uh, we couldn't get the rights for it. So we we're looking at other things. And then one day, Dale sent me an email. He said, how about The Shining? And I said, wow, what an idea. And he made it very clear that he wanted to do, he, he thought that Stephen King's novel would make a terrific opera. Not the Kubrick adaptation so much. Mm -hmm. As brilliant as that movie is, and you know, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's, as you know, it's not what Mr. King wrote. And um, there are substantive differences in the story, mm -hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. And also the tone of the whole story is different, you know, as mm -hmm. you know. Anyways, getting back to the origins of this. So um, I said, terrific idea. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry to say I hadn't read the book. <laughs> I mean, I said, of course, I knew the, the, the Kubrick film. I saw it uh, when it opened, in, I guess, in 1980. Yeah. I'm, I'm dating myself there <laughs> um, and thought it was terrific. And um, But I hadn't read the book. And so I did read the book. And I said, wow, yeah, this is this story has everything that opera features. Um, I think of opera as being about basically three things, love, death, and power, mm -hmm. at least. I mean, opera usually has those elements in some form. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the Shining has all of those elements, as you know, on steroids. And by power, I mean not political power, but who's getting what they want in the story, who's not getting what they want, mm -hmm. how they struggle, how the transactions happen, and so on. That's what I mean. And certainly the dynamic there is very, very powerfully, you know, related in that story. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, then Dale 
Johnson suggested as a librettist, uh, Mark Campbell. And I'm glad he did because Mark Campbell is the, uh, just, and I, I can't say enough about him. He's mm -hmm. an astounding um, intellect and librettist and uh, just a wonderful collaborator. And so we met in New York. We're both New Yorkers. And uh, we, we decided we were on the same page on this and off we went. So that's how this started. Wow. How did you kind of approach working with him to start adapting this? Because you're adapting a, a definite piece of text with dialogue. So how did those those first kind of thematic conversations go? Between Mark and I? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, as you know, it's, it's, a, it's a long book. It's mm -hmm. 600 some pages. Mm -hmm. And you might know that opera librettos are short. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think the, the, the libretto for um, it just, you know, typed out print, I think in this case is maybe 45 pages or something. Mm -hmm. so the librettist uh, needs to take the essence of the story, boil it down from 600 some pages to 40 some pages. And I think Mark did it brilliantly. I think that he, he tells the story, he captures and projects the moods, the characters, and he wrote some beautiful lyrics that um, that comprise the arias. You know, the, mm -hmm. the arias are, 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 you know, come from. They are the arias. And um, uh, so that's that was the principal thing is to, to condense this much larger work into something um, mm -hmm. oper operatable. <laughs> yeah. Operatable. Oper operable. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, it's interesting it, when I think about The Shining, like I think ostensibly it's like this scary piece, but there's a lot of heart to it. And I was listening yeah. to the arias and there are just really some beautiful tender moments there yeah. that I just thought were gorgeous. What did you have in mind like for the voices of Wendy and Jack and Dick and, and any of the other characters? And did did it did the way it turned out, did that kind of meet what you had originally imagined? Yes, absolutely. And the, the original cast was outstanding. Every one of them was fantastic and mm -hmm. a composer's dream. And I was able to cast uh, Jack Torrance. Uh, Brian Mulligan was already cast. They knew that he was going to do it. So I simply asked Brian, what are your best notes? What, 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 do, you, <laughs> what do you like to sing? You know, what, mm -hmm. what makes you sound good? Because when he sounds good, I sound good. You know, mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so it's a great thing to be able to cast ahead of time. And uh, so I, I tailored it to his voice, and it's the uh, kind of thing that that, that other uh, baritones can also do as well, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, uh, and um, Ed Parks is the new Jack Torrance. He will be in the Opera Colorado uh, production. Mm -hmm. I'm very much looking forward to. It. He's fantastic. You mentioned the story, the warmth of the story that. Mm -hmm. And I think of Stephen King's story as, and again, as distinct, as distinct from the Kubrick film, which is another thing. Kubrick does his own thing. But Stephen King's story originally is, about, is a love story. There's a genuine warmth and love and passion and emotion in this story, uh, which gives rise to song. In my mm -hmm. I mean, the big question in opera is, why are people singing? I mean, what a crazy thing. You know, this is... <laughs> this irrational art form mm -hmm. what is it that um causes the water to boil in the tea kettle and makes the tea kettle sing you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, that's what you need in an opera. And so the generating force of um, Mr. King's story is, is all there. It's, you know, it's, it's a very powerful story. It's, it's, and it's, and it's, it, it, and for all of the horror and the ghosts and, you know, everything that happens in the um, hotel, at the end of the day, it's a very human, intimate um, story about love. Mm-hmm. And it's a, and as odd as this seems, it seems to me that Jack Torrance is basically a decent guy trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, makes the connection between Jack Torrance and you, the audience. Yeah. Because, um, because of his basic decency and ordinariness before he goes mm-hmm. completely mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it makes a connection with you, the audience. And so, uh, and what I as a composer try to do is to write music that um, works directly on the central nervous system of you, the audience. So, so that you're feeling what Jack is feeling, what Wendy is feeling, Danny, all the characters are feeling, Halloran. So that you and the audience sitting there feel what they're feeling and you think, there but for the grace of God go I. That could be me. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's a tragedy, you know, boy, I, 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 if it's a comedy, yeah, that could be me up there. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so the, Stephen King gives all of that to mm-hmm. us, the creators, in, in a very powerful way. And, and, and it's, it was a joy to write this piece. It was also scary as hell. Uh, and uh by the way my my wife's name is wendy oh no oh, wow <laughs> so there's a little personal uh <laughs> well, reflections could, there you could hear me working on this thing because i i sing the the parts as i'm playing you know mm-hmm. and so i'm playing the piano and going i'm going to kill you wendy <laughs> oh my gosh and, like, What's that, darling? I said, nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm just, you know, <laughs> just working on a piece. Just... <laughs> oh, man, I, oh know, my goodness. <laughs> um, wow. So anyway. That's, a, that, that's incredible. And I, and I do think that that's a real distinction, as you said, you know, from Kubrick's vision, because I think that's ultimately what really bothered King in 1980. Um, when he saw the film was that there is no real love there, you know? I mean, I, I guess you could read between the lines and say, oh, well, you know, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, there is love if you look behind the the, the veneer on on, on Jack, Jack Torrance with Jack Nicholson. But really, I think in, in if you're looking at the three emotions that you said, love, death, and power, I think ultimately Kubrick's probably leaning more on power. Whereas I think King certainly does lean in love with his That's novel. And I think that was a really smart choice. Um, also in the, um, the Kubrick adaptation, which by the way, I think is brilliant. I think it's- Oh, a, absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but it stands alone as its own thing. But what Definitely. Kubrick is doing doesn't have um, a, an emotional trajectory the way that Stephen King's story has. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, in other words, you see Jack Nicholson with his arched eyebrows, you know, <laughs> at the very beginning. Well, that's not going to happen to me. <laughs> um, you know, he's nuts. Mm-hmm. Already, you know, he, the, the, he's tipped your, his hand already, which mm-hmm. might, which might be Kubrick's intention. Whereas 
Um, I don't know, quote me, you might look this up, but I think that Stephen King actually preferred to have somebody like John Voight in that role. Mm-hmm. Because John Voight has the sort of placid face, or he did, mm-hmm. you know, back in 1980. Um, and what's scary is seeing a decent man lose his mind and go completely bonkers. And, oh, and, yeah. And so on. Um, and that, there's the story. There's mm-hmm. the trajectory. And um, one of the things that, that um, King does in this story is he... One of the things that makes him such a great storyteller is he works with archetypes. He works with very deep myths, mm-hmm. stories that go way back in, you know, in the origins of our culture and beyond. Um, and I think of this story in part as an Abraham and Isaac story. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, the story of the, both in both cases, you have a supernatural power. Uh, in the case of the the Overlook, it's the manager, it's Delbert Grady, uh, telling him to kill his family. Mm-hmm. That's one set of instructions to kill his son. Actually, mm-hmm. getting back to Abraham and Isaac, mm-hmm. he's instructed to kill his son, um, and uh, so that's one set of instructions. And he and because he needs this job for his. Um, self-esteem and so he can't lose he can't disappoint the boss etc i'm not going to lose this job etc he heads in that direction he's trying to do the right thing in a certain Mm -hmm. twisted weird way Mm -hmm. on the other hand there is uh he's a decent guy who genuinely loves his son and his whole being is about protecting his son and his Mm -hmm. and so on so you have this true dilemma this unresolvable dilemma at the heart of the story now that is a story that's yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's deeply archetypal. Mm-hmm. This is something that makes the story timeless and universal. Absolutely. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Yeah, and you know, it's tragic, you know, because I mean... I don't know if you could really call Kubrick's version tragedy as so much it is just a a downward spiral, if anything. Mm-hmm. And I and I don't know. I mean, I guess you can make the tragedy the case for some of the characters in there in in terms of their arcs being tragic. But yeah, it, it really does kind of feel more of like an aesthetic piece in that respect, where you are just kind of being absorbed by the horror of it all. Um, but you know, on that note, uh, you know, it's so iconic and, and it's so ubiquitous. And I wondered, you know, 
you're coming in with, you know, having to create music and the music of that movie is also so iconic and so, um, you know, connected to the shining name was there, you know, for lack of better words, was Kubrick's ghost lingering around your music room when you were coming up with this, you know, were you kind uh, of trying to really avoid it as much as possible? Yeah. I, I basically ignored it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know the movie and I know the music and so on, and I just ignored it. Um, mm-hmm. I, because first of all, opera is a different medium. I mean, you have yeah. to mm-hmm. entirely separate sound world and it's driven by voice. It's driven by you know, singers and so on. So, I was able to avoid um, uh, references to the to the film. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, there's a scene in the movie where uh, Jack Nicholson makes fun of spooky f- film music. Mm-hmm. Sort of, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know. um, so there's a little meta thing going on there, you know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and. What I did was to avoid the, try to avoid the cliches of uh, scary music. To, mm. In other words, my task was to in, in come up with fresh ways of scaring people. Ah. And so what I did was not so much in the timbres, not so much in the tone colors like spooky sounds, but it's in the harmonies. It, mm. it, mm-hmm. In the... Um, the way the harmonies work and the way that they project uh, character and the transformation of character. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, Jack Torrance starts out uh, singing in a kind of tonal universe. That is uh, when I say tonal, I'm referring to the music of, um, you know, triadic harmonies, uh, mm-hmm. you know, tonic dominant harmonies, you know, traditional harmonies that Beethoven would, recognize and so on for example Mm -hmm. um but as he deteriorates his his uh harmonic language becomes unhinged he starts to become unmoored so by the middle of the second act when he's completely lost his mind before he comes back to himself by the way which is a whole other thing uh in the middle of the second act he's he sounds like watsek he sounds like um lulu he sounds Mm -hmm. He's singing twelve tone rows. Actually, mm-hmm. he, he, he's become unhinged, unmoored from a tonal center. He has become literally eccentric. He's oh, flying wow. off in all directions harmonically. So that is my way of uh, capturing and projecting his derangement, his, mm-hmm. his, the, tracking the, the, the progress of his derangement. You know. Um, uh-huh. Oh my gosh. I love that. That's such a smart way to, to approach that character. I love yeah, that. So, so it doesn't, thank you. Well, it doesn't matter <laughs> so much that the timbres are very important, you know? So mm-hmm. here, here are some things that are absolutely unavoidable. Um, if you, you've got, if you want to make the audience jump out of the seats, you need a big trombone section. <laughs> uh-huh. So you go, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god you know mm-hmm. um you need that you know so there, mm-hmm. there are certain things that are absolutely unavoidable you know it's like this physical animal thing that happens you know when you do that mm-hmm. um so but anyways well and i was gonna ask how you approach the orchestration also because i think when i think of how cold and icy the story is that 
makes me think about violins and maybe like thin high strings and then thinking about the percussion of the roke mallet and so you mentioned the trombone was but was there any other like particular instrument or section that you were gravitating towards for particular parts of the story contrabassoon ah. <laughs> contrabassoons are are deeply unsettling instruments mm -hmm. <laughs> they really are <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and harp, you know, for mm -hmm. um, the for Wendy's aria, for example, her, her aria in um, in Act One, which is about mm. I, I never stop loving you, you know, mm. which is real aria. What I did was I wanted to first of all, Mark gave me a beautiful love song text, you know, full of tragedy and overcoming obstacles and so it's a beautiful text and I very self-consciously wanted to write a kind of um Puccini-esque aria like mm -hmm. uh like um V.C. Dante from you know uh, uh, uh Tosca that kind of thing mm -hmm. um and I was thrilled in, in the premiere in the first performance that Wendy it, 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 this happens about 25 minutes into the first act she sings her aria, I Never Stopped Loving You, and the audience applauded. They, they, they broke, they, they applauded, and then I said, now there's an aria. Uh-huh. The audience yep. got it that this was an actual aria, the very mm -hmm. first time, the very first performance. And oh, I, wow. I love that, you know. I thought, oh, this is an opera. You know? Uh-huh. Did you find any of the, the characters more challenging to write for than others? Yes, Jack Torrance, most of all. Mm -hmm. um, because this it really cost me psychologically i have to say and emotionally i mean this was not an easy thing to do mm -hmm. i'm a kind of method composer you know how they're method actors and so on interesting method composer that is i need to get into the characters like really mm. deeply i need to be the characters in a way mm -hmm. um whether it's halloran or, or wendy or or jack um and jack was the hardest to deal with because he goes mad and, mm -hmm. I, and I started to lose it you know not, not the way yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, especially since your wife's Wendy this is I know uh, <laughs> is she still there uh in the background <laughs> she's still alive uh, <laughs> um, not full method <laughs> yeah no not full method no no it's just like oh my um, gosh you brought home a rope now like what's this <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you know it, it was very difficult for me, psychologically, as as I imagine, I'm not an actor, but as I imagine, a method actor must become a little crazed, playing mm -hmm. a crazy character, you know, and, mm -hmm. and then they have to go into detox or whatever after that, you know. <laughs> yeah, just uh, rehab, rehab. <laughs> Anyways. Can I ask about Danny also? Because yeah. I think if I were to approach composing an opera for, because like, one of the central characters is a child. And so, and I know that that is a spoken role. So how, what did you have in mind for that? Or how did you kind of approach um, involving Danny in the story? Well, I made, it a spoke, I made it a spoken role because it's so hard to find, first of all, somebody who looks like they're five years old. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. You really need a five-year-old. Yeah. yeah, It's not going to work with somebody who looks like they're 10 or 11 mm -hmm. because they can fight back. You know, they, yeah. mm -hmm. so you really need a five-year-old. So that there's a practical reason for that. You just give them speaking roles. So that, I mean, that's, that's the reason I did that. 
you know, the, the, I read that it took three years to conceive altogether. Is that true? Was it was was it a three year run for from you know ideation to actual execution? Yeah, about yeah. Wow, wow. What and um, you know, looking back, um, what were some of the toughest hurdles, especially in getting it finally to the stage? You know, like it's one thing to like write it. You know, were there any other things that even when you were adapting um, to get it, you know, to the performers? Did you have to make any tweaks? Were there anything where you're like, oh, well, I guess in that, you know, maybe maybe it could benefit if we adjust this way. Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. There, um, we workshopped this um, quite a bit. I mean, Minnesota Opera is a fantastic opera company. And one of the great things they do when they're creating a new opera is to give the creators ample workshop time and space. Mm. Uh, so we had two full workshops with piano, you know, piano workshops, um, where we, with the actual singers or, you know, understudies, but anyways, we worked mm -hmm. with actual singers for about a year writing it as we went. I mean, we, mm. Mark and I wrote, you know, the draft, but then we, we revised the hell out of it. I mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. it's all about revision. It's all about, uh, you know, well, for me, it's sitting at the piano, making the music, making the score, uh, handing out the scores and everything. Okay, now you put it on on its feet, as they say. Mm -hmm. And you say, oh, boy, we have a lot of work to do, you know. And then mm -hmm. but it's, it's really when it's on its feet, then you can see where the problems are and where the possibilities are. And mm -hmm. actually come up with things you hadn't thought of before. And so it's mm -hmm. enormously inspiring. Another thing that they did is Minnesota gave me an orchestral workshop. So oh, wow. I orchestrated wow. the whole thing. We did a whole workshop again with the orchestra there. This is fantastic. This uh -huh. is come true. It's very, very rare. Mm -hmm. And so you solve a lot of practical problems with the orchestra before you get into the final rehearsals, you know, and up to mm -hmm. Yeah. Opening. There's some things you just can't replicate on a piano, you know. <laughs> so there was a lot of workshopping going on and thank mm -hmm. God for that because that's what made it. And by the way, as as a composer of opera, my feeling is um yes, I'm proud of what I'm doing and I believe in the music and so on. But if it doesn't work dramatically, I, it's up to me to change it. I have absolutely yeah. no ego about that. And mm -hmm. this is what I tell my collaborators, and this is what I tell the conductor, whatever, it, or the stage director, you know, or the singers. If you find something that doesn't work dramatically, tell me. Mm -hmm. I'll fix it. Because mm -hmm. if it doesn't work as theater, if it doesn't work as drama, it doesn't work. I don't care mm -hmm. how good the music is. It mm -hmm. just doesn't work. So... Um, you know, in the workshop process, I heard a lot of comments that I really didn't want to hear. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but, well, of course. But I'm glad I heard them. I'm glad mm -hmm. they, they um, made these suggestions and, you know, the, uh, and expressed these objections to what was mm -hmm. going on because that made me uh, make something better out of it. Mm -hmm. They're like the sand in my oysters, so to speak. <laughs> like I have to. I have to imagine, though, coming in with the Pulitzer was probably they were probably like, uh, they probably deferred a lot to you, right? I mean, <laughs> I have to imagine a little bit, right? I don't know about that, but, <laughs> um, did, but I, I do want to ask though, because 
horror is such a finicky thing. You know, I think one of the the easy assumptions with the genre is that oh, you know, it's just, you know, jump and scare, jump and scare, and it's the human condition, you know, you can you can frighten anyone. But I think honestly what what's really complicated about the genre is that you're it's 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 a delicate balance of tones. And I have to imagine that balance is even more complicated in opera when you're trying to do, you know, delicate that. And did you find yourself at some points maybe just not even worrying about the the, the horror at that or even caring at all about it and mostly just kind of focusing on the tragedy and drama of it all? Or was there a was the balance of of tones the the toughest struggle for you? Well, no, we need to keep the horror element present, you know, in in the back because it's always there. Uh, on some level. So yeah, that's an apt word. Yes, it's striking a balance uh, between these and among these elements. Mm -hmm. Well, and you mentioned Rosemary's Baby. Um, Are there any other horror titles that you would be interested in trying to adapt or any other kind of scary stories that you feel drawn to? Well, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) It's been done several times. I mean, I think there's a musical mm -hmm. some years ago and so um, there's a story. By the way, that's another archetype that uh, King is is playing on in mm-hmm. Shining. Um, not so much in in the Kubrick adaptation, but certainly in the story in the original mm-hmm. the novel. Um, um, there's clearly this you know Do- Jekyll and Hyde thing going on with Jack, and he's aware of it. Mm-hmm. See, that's dramatic. That's mm-hmm. interesting. That he that he comes back to himself at some point and realizes what's happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I think that's what makes it truly horrific. You know, if you put yourself in his shoes. Oh, you know? totally. But, but, but it's also beautiful. It's it, mm-hmm. it, and we really play this up. We, this angle or this mm-hmm. aspect of the story, his redemption. Mm-hmm. There's this redemptive moment. In, um, in in the book and but again we um, highlight it really mm-hmm. we make it shine so to speak we put a spotlight on it mm-hmm. um, where um, Danny says to Jack you're not my father mm-hmm. you know and that and that's when Jack realizes what's happened to him and mm-hmm. says, run Danny get away get away and and, and so that's his redemption so to speak Mm-hmm. That's another very operatic thing, you know. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, which is different than like the cinematic kind of language that Kubrick has. Like that's right. the the emotional passion in the story. Mm-hmm. I feel like is what I think you said sing, makes it sing, which I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. So. Did uh, did Stephen King have uh, any input on this, or did you get to connect with him at all throughout the process? Um, I had to get the rights from him, and. Um, I, through a mutual friend, I sent him an email um, proposing this story and, and saying, you know, saying, hi, I'm a composer in uh, this Minnesota opera and I are interested in doing this. And I sent him the, the, the sort of budget, you know, some of the, what this was, you know, what we were planning to do. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think your story would make a great opera. Here's why. Yeah, I didn't mention the movie. <laughs> yeah, probably a good thing for them. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, okay, that's it. I'll never hear from him. And he, he sent an email back like 20 minutes later. Oh, my God. oh, wow. And he said, 
oh yeah, contact my uh, assistant in the, you know tomorrow, and you know we'll get going on this. And so he was very generous. Uh, mm -hmm. He wanted, um, as is his uh, privilege, he wanted to have um, wanted to see the outline, and he wanted to see the working script. You know, the, mm -hmm. the so we sent. When those were ready, we sent those to him and he approved them right away. Oh, wow. Do you know if he's seen it or heard the music? I don't know. I, I, he's, he was very pleased with the reviews, which were, you know, which he called lyrical. I mean, they mm. were really outstanding. And mm -hmm. so he, he was pleased at, at, at how it, uh, it came off and was received. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have any plans to um, record the the music and release it in any way, like a physical release? At some point, yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll... Mm -hmm. You know, we we talked a little bit about Opera Colorado and how it's you know uh, in a way, I guess the story is coming home. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it all started at the Stanley Hotel, so I, I the story at least. Are you always involved in the in the reproductions? Well, this is the first production and this is the first presentation since the premiere yeah mm. and, and it is the basically the minnesota opera production in other words it's the set it's the original orchestration oh, wow. oh interesting interesting um are you is there any are there any changes to this one you yeah know, from the original we, we big change is we made an aria for jack uh which ah. uh wendy has an aria halloran has two arias Mm -hmm. and Wendy has, you know, at least two are There are arias in it, the main character. Mm -hmm. Jack is singing, you know, most of the way through the mm -hmm. opera. He's on stage most of the time, but he he does he never really has an aria. In other words, there's mm -hmm. no moment where he does a soliloquy, and we mm -hmm. and we see what we hear what he's thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and so Mark and I decided to put it in near the end of the first act, and it really really enhances the mm -hmm. piece because because you, you know he speaks to the audience or mm -hmm. i should say the audience sees his mind revealed you know mm -hmm. was that just something oh sorry go ahead. oh i was just gonna say was that something that you you'd realized like you know early on in the, the original production or you maybe like side stage thinking ah, you should have given jack an aria <laughs> like yeah yeah. <laughs> no. Nice. I mean, it, it worked anyways, but what this mm -hmm. does, it, re it enhances it. It, it, mm -hmm. it fills out his character very nicely. I think. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Just something I think is so powerful about the book is that you are able to get inside his head and, and know that he is really trying to do his best and he really is underneath a good person. So I imagine allowing him to have a moment to just sing that from the stage would right. feel really fulfilling and kind of help ground the audience, you know. Right. And um, Halloran um, emerges really as the hero of the story. I mean, he's mm -hmm. in a way, Wendy is the moral center of the piece. She's, she's mm -hmm. all together, but it's it's also Halloran mm -hmm. them together. And my favorite part of the book is the ending. It's the final chapter. It's just a beautiful ending mm -hmm. um, where Halloran is explaining life to Danny and, mm. you know, um, and comforting them. He's taken Wendy and, and Danny to Maine to mm -hmm. recover and just recuperate <laughs> from mm -hmm. injuries for one thing. Mm. And we give him an aria at the end that totally grounds the opera. I mean, emotionally, mm. it, it brings everything together. 
Mm-hmm. And it's this kind of benediction that, that Halloran sings at the end mm-hmm. of, of this amazing story. And I, it, it works, I think. And, you know, I, I know how it sounds, but I, I think it works. Yeah. It's, it's mm-hmm. Very powerful. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful aria. Yeah. Well, like Halloran, I mean, you're going to the hotel this weekend. Um, you know, you're going to be at the Stanley Hotel for. Actually, going at... actually we're not. That, that's... Oh no! Oh really? Oh no! Um, because of the Omicron resurgence, mm. um, they couldn't get enough um, customers. You know, people to, to to. There was this plan to you, know, you pay a certain amount to stay yeah. and, and do the whole thing. Uh, people were, were scared off by, by mm. this new variant. Bad timing, you know. I think, yeah, I think yeah. If it were a few weeks later, maybe it might have worked. But anyway, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's, it's disappointing, but there it is. Have you been to the Stanley Hotel? Yes, I have. Oh, have, <laughs> did you stayed overnight and all? <laughs> yeah, because um, Mark and I and the director, Eric Simonson, were uh, brought out there by the Stanley Hotel to see if we could... This was, you know, in early 2017, mm-hmm. in January, February. They, we went out there to see if we could do a, a, a short version and, and of The Shining in the hotel. So, you know, wow. the ballroom scene happens in the ballroom. Yeah, that's uh, mm-hmm. so cool. <laughs> Oh wow! Like, like in scenes in two seventeen would happen in a room or something. Was yeah. that kind of the original idea? Yeah. Oh wow! wow. God, that'd be so cool. <laughs> and uh, that- from, so we figured out, yeah, there's a way to do this. And, uh-huh. um, uh huh. The, the the cost was prohibitive, so we decided not to do that. But the second yeah. best thing was this this idea to, which is canceled by uh, the pandemic, but mm-hmm. uh, of doing uh, arias from the uh, opera in the actual hotel. So, oh my God. You know, just in, <laughs> in the auditorium there. So. Mm-hmm. God, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you believe in ghosts? <laughs> Have you, did you see any when you were there? Um, I don't believe in ghosts, but I believe in the right to exist. Mm. I like that. I like that. That's a great, you know, that is a great mm. answer. And right. um, this position, I will not waver. Yeah, I like this. Yeah, mine's kind of like I, I, if they exist, that's great. I don't have to know about it, and I'm happy not knowing if one's behind me right now. Yeah, I, I'm an agnostic. I might say mm. they, they might exist. I don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah, that seems to be the I've co-host. Never, I've never yeah. seen one, you know, and I, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. yeah. Are there any other Stephen King stories that you would might want to adapt? Um, oh, many. Yeah. I mean, the uh, Shawshank Redemption, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, that would be so good. Very, very operatic. Um, mm-hmm. you know, yes. uh, he's a great storyteller. Just mm-hmm. and, and yeah, there's a lot of material. There. Yeah. Yeah. I loved how you mentioned archetypes because I do think I hadn't really thought about that his writing in terms of archetypes, but you're right. And that is what kind of the essence of opera is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, are you going to be heading there uh, at least for the Ellie Hawkins Opera House opening? Um, or yeah. Yes. I very think cool. February twenty sixth. Yeah. Opening night. I'll be there for that. And it's going to be spectacular. Yeah. Even yeah. spectacular. <laughs> I like that. I love it. I like it. that. Uh, well, that that seems like a good button uh, on this one. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for talking to us. I, mm-hmm. I, this has been just a, a real treat. 
And uh, I, I really can, hope we can, can see it. Can you come see it? Oh, I hope so. I, I mean, would I, love to. <laughs> come see you know, it. I'm no dying best. to get out there. I'm, you mm-hmm. know, some. Satisfaction guarantee, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we will definitely try. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, you can definitely go out there uh, on your own, constant listeners. Uh, just get out there. It's uh, Ellie Cockins Opera House. We're going to have all the linkage in the description of this episode. Paul. Mm-hmm. Long days and pleasant nights. <laughs> Thank <Bye>. you. <laughs> I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. This is the end of our show. For now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.